The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. With Oscar season upon us, we wanted to call attention to two conversations with directors whose films have been shortlisted for Oscars that you can watch now on Netflix. First, we spoke with Margaret Brown about her film Descendant, which has been shortlisted for the Best Documentary Feature Academy Award. This brilliantly multi-layered film follows the descendants of the last American slave ship, the Clotilda. We explored with her how she juxtaposed their oral history with the search for the actual ship. I found this film to be a compelling mix of history, poetry, and advocacy for environmental justice. Secondly, we spoke with Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy about the Martha Mitchell effect, which has been shortlisted for the Oscar for Best Documentary Short. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy and a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her own husband. Stunning in its revelations and highly immersive in its creative approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. You can see both of these films now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Violet Dufang, the director of Hidden Letters. The film had its world premiere at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival, has screened widely throughout the world, and has won numerous awards, including Best Documentary Feature at the Heartland Film Festival, and both the Audience Award and the Best International Documentary Jury Award at the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. Hidden Letters is one of 15 documentaries recently named to the Oscar shortlist in the category of Best Documentary Feature. Violet Dufang is an Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker and a 2018 Sundance Creative Producing Fellow. Her producing credits include Singing in the Wilderness, Confucian Dream, Mainland, and Please Remember Me. Hidden Letters is her feature documentary directorial debut. So Hidden Letters is a film about new shoe, which is a kind of secret language that women in a rural part of China developed when they were basically confined to these chamber rooms and had very little outlet for self-expression or communication or freedom. It's a really fascinating film, both in terms of its history, but also the contemporary elements and how the Chinese government in its current capitalist form has really co-opted, commercialized, and completely subverted the language, except for one fact, which is that there are women today who are carrying forward the tradition of Nushu and using it in new ways, but still retaining its core elements and using it as a tool of self-expression, communication, and a means of forming sisterhood. There's a lot to this film, and it resonates with other recent films made in China, such as last year's Ascension by Jessica Kingdon, the films of Nanfu Wong, and even a short documentary that Violet names as her hidden gem. Hidden Letters is being distributed by Cargo Film and Releasing and premieres on PBS's Independent Lens on March 27th. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Violet Dufang, the director of Hidden Letters. Violet Dufeng, welcome to Top Docs. 
Thank you so much for having me, Ken. So for people who haven't seen the film yet, can you briefly describe what Nushu is? Yeah, so Nushu is an ancient hidden language created and shared only among women that was originated in feudal society in China about 400 years ago when in this very secluded area of central China in Hunan province, there's a few villages in this county called Jiangyong. And in these secluded villages, most of the people there are peasants and then they're basically living under the bottom of the socioeconomic landscape of China, even during the feudal society. And then among that, woman is even having much lower status compared to men. And because that was in a time when women are known for obey their husbands, obey their sons and obey their fathers. And they also were forced to have bond feet and lock in the chamber room and deprive rights of education. So instead of like the rest of the China, where most of the women's voices were silenced, have no record in our literature because of their deprived rights of education, these women in this particular area decided to create a language that men didn't understand and only to share among themselves. And with this language, they were able to create this beautiful, intentionally structured sisterhood from the time when a girl was little all the way till when she died. Through the sisterhood, all the women came together and using Yushu to write poems and songs to give each other hope and dignity. And in the sisterhood, they vowed to support and lift each other up throughout their lives. So Nishu is not only just a language, it's really a form of sisterhood. It's really a form of community building strengths among women in the most unbearable situations. So at one time, Nushu was a secret language. When did you first become aware of it and what made you want to make a film about it? I read a novel by Lisa C. called A Snowflower and a Secret Fan about 17 years ago. It's a novel based on Nushu. And that was the first time I heard about it. And I remember that I was just finished my graduate school at Berkeley. And when I was reading this book, I felt quite ashamed as a Chinese woman born and raised from China that I knew nothing about the language. And I think me representing probably the majority of the Chinese population that who didn't know anything about the language. And also as a woman that felt like it should be part of my education, it should be part of my history, but I didn't know about it. However, at the same time, while I was reading it thousands of miles away, I didn't know that one of my producers at the time, I didn't know her and her mom is also Chinese. She's half Chinese, half Norwegian living in Norway. So her mom was also reading the same book and since then has been nudging her to make a film about Nishu. So fast forward about 10 years later, her name is Meta Chao Montikas, and she was working with Jin Chen on another film. Jin Chen has been my longest mentor and very well-respected filmmaker in the doc industry in the U.S., both of them came to me and asked me to make a film about Nushu. And at the time I was living in China, just got married and then became a young mother. And that was a time that I suddenly realized the societal changes from when I was raised up more in a communist time to where when I went back after having education in the US, when the country has become so much more capitalistic and how that kind of jeopardizing a lot of ways of gender equality. And me as a woman and a young mother and a wife felt very much trapped in the revived kind of pressures of women politically, economically, and reproductively. So I can expand that of why particularly at that point, I felt very much 
in need to have a space to talk about women's experiences in China, particularly. So when they approach me, my instant reaction is that if there's a way I can tie the history of Nishu with the contemporary women's experiences in China today, then that's a film that will be really interesting to make and it can be really impactful. When I discussed that concept with my team, I think everybody started to embrace that and then we start to develop that concept and vision together. And how did you meet your two main characters, Hu Xing and Simu? So my casting pool is quite small because nationally, the certified neutral practitioners were only seven. And one of them actually died right before we released the film at Tribeca. So now only six. And the youngest one is Hu Xing. So when I first went to the village to scout on and cast, of course, I wanted to focus on the younger generation because they're the one who is at the forefront of figuring out their gender roles and also dealing with many kind of gender challenges in their personal life and professional lives as women. So Hu Xing as the youngest one and also around the age that's a little bit younger than me, but also at the crossroad of her life in terms of her personal life and professional life too, that after the first conversation I had with her, I realized that what she's struggling with in terms of trying to fulfill her role as a wife and trying to deliver a boy to her husband and something clicked there and it made me realize that I, there's more to dig there. So a few months later, when I called her and I said that I want to come back and I want to talk to your husband. And then she started crying and she said, three days ago, he divorced me. So that was the moment that I realized that she is going to be my main character because from that point on, she's going to have a different relationship with Nushu because she would need Nushu in a different way. And how that's going to help to transform her and where is she going to land in a different place in her life, I don't know. But I know that will be a very interesting point for me to start following her. And for Sum, I also know from the very beginning that I want to cast a girl from rural and not a girl from urban settings. Because for women, their challenges in these two different areas are quite different, particularly in China. So for Sumo, she's in living metropolitan city, which is Shanghai. But she's also, interestingly to me, that the only... <laughs> person in Yushu that is fascinated by Yushu out of her pure passion instead of trying to exploit it or take it for her own fame or money or anything. So that really intrigued me in a way of she really wanted to have a conversation with those women from the past in Yushu in order for her to figure out who she wants to become as a woman. And with that effort, she's also using Yushu as a creative tool to explore her gender identities while in the group with 20 other female artists to have their annual exhibitions to use art forms to express their own female voices. And I thought that's also really fascinating. And also when I started following her, I also knew that she just got engaged. She's at a point that she's going to start the relationship and however that's going to be leading up to marriage and have kids, I don't know, but that could also be interesting to really look at her, her efforts trying to balance herself as all these roles that I am also struggling with as a wife, as a mother, as a filmmaker, and for her as a musician. So how does she navigate all those roles and how does neutral play a role in terms of guiding her through that process? I want to ask you about the opening scene that follows the title of the film. In this scene, Hu Xing, who works at the Nushu Museum in Zhangyang, is describing what Nushu is to a group of tourists who are not paying that much attention to what she's saying. And then suddenly a guy just barges in 
totally interrupts her in mid-sentence and announces, I'm honored to introduce our national model worker. It's kind of a surreal moment, and it's a prime example, I think, of how women's voices are literally drowned out by men's voices. So it becomes this kind of concrete example of erasure or silencing that is also central to our understanding of Nushu and is clearly a theme of the film. So I have a couple of questions about this scene. Mm -hmm. First, did you have any idea that this interruption was going to happen? Or was this just one of those kind of fortuitous observational moments in documentary that you can't plan for? Yeah, I mean, it's pure observational. The guy actually works at the museum. He is, I think, a manager at the museum. So I think that he is saying that in a way, kind of like in favor of complimenting her. But also, I think you're very intuitive and also like sensible in terms of seeing that how he's being intrusive into that space that she's trying to create for the tourists as well. That kind of intrusiveness and arrogance of sometimes by men into this kind of, particularly this kind of space is throughout the film. Yeah. And we're very lucky to capture many of those moments when we're filming. And that's just one of that. I would say that like this film is all these scenes are captured in an observational way. It seems like when you started planning the film and thinking about the themes and how you wanted to approach it, you did always intend to marry a look at the history and practice of Nushu with contemporary issues and what women like your main characters and even yourself are going through. But until you started filming, did you really know you were going to be able to bring that kind of present tense reality to the subject? Yeah, I think that was the intention. I always knew that the focus of the main narrative is going to be focusing on these two women, on their own personal experiences as a woman. And that's very much what we were set to do because, yes, this is a film about Nushu, but indeed that when we started the project, we knew that this is a film more about women's experiences of contemporary China today. So when we approached the characters, we also were very clear to them that we are making a film about Nushu, but really we're through your eyes and then through Nushu's eyes and lens that to really look at the context of what women are living under right now. And that's why they open up to us, not their relationship with Nushu, but also the entirety of their life. Another important character in the film is Hua Yangxin, who yes. is a mentor of Hu Xing's and is really an incredible person. I would describe her as very old school when it comes to Nushu. At one point, she says, Nushu then was private, now it's public. My Nushu belongs to the chamber rooms. Can you give us a bit of background on chamber rooms? What were they and what role did they play in the social confinement of women? So in those days, particularly under feudal societies, when women are living, especially in those villages, many of the households, they have a courtyard, right? And then there's the first floor and the second floor, and women's bedroom is always on the second floor. And it's usually that when they started bound feet around seven or eight years old, sometimes younger, they were mostly confined in that space of the room because of the bounty that it prevented them from travel or even go out of the house many times. So their freedom usually is before they have bound feet and then when they have the girlhood and can play in the fields with other young girls and then in games and stuff. But once they start a bound feet, their life is mostly confined in the chamber room. And then in this case, 
the girls are allowed together in the chamber rooms and learn new shows together and do embroidery and sing songs and then share their experiences, talk their, about their lives and build their relationships together. So that's very much the space that where they build their friendship, their sisterhood. And also once one of them were married off by arranged marriages, this is also the space that these women will write letters to each other from because that's the space that they will spend most of their rest of their life. There are a number of shots in the film that are taken, that appear to be taken through the slats of these rooms looking outside. I wonder if that was a way for you to kind of use the visual grammar of film or a shorthand to express what these rooms would have been like to experience. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I always knew that it will be so important for audience to experience the physical and the mental and the emotional confinement that these women were experiencing back in those days in order for people to relate and resonate and understand better of women's experiences today. But because most of these women have passed away and most of these spaces do not exist anymore. So I'm always like struggling, trying to find what to do. And also there's not that many records of Nushu given that most women burned their writings when they died. There's just not that much materials that existing for me to leverage and then help establish that kind of experience for the audience. So I always thought that we're going to use animation to tell the backstory, honestly. While we're developing the film for a few years and every time like at the pitch form, I always say that we're going to use animation and we even like spend months to develop the look of the animation. It actually we work with a very brilliant Chinese French woman in Paris who has training of Chinese traditional ink brush. And we develop this really beautiful look and very abstract and to really help resonate people and ground people in that kind of experience. We even created a scene narrated by He Yanxing talking about her childhood story and the music and all of that. We created that. But as soon as we drop that scene into the assembly cut, all our team members all of a sudden realized that with the animation, we are romanticizing those women's experiences from the past. And that's not an honest and authentic kind of description of the confinement and the emotional suppression that they were going through. No matter how we're trying to do in the animation, it's going to romanticizing that experience. So instantly we realized that we took the entire animation out and then all of a sudden, I realized that why don't we just take a camera to really film in a way to help people understand their physical confinement. And it's exactly that space that their physical being were under while allowed them to write these beautiful poems. So having the poem as a visual element to connect and superimpose onto the physical space of the chamber room that we found that was abandoned and still existed. And it's the actual chamber room of He Yanxing when she was little. As soon as we have that new concept and idea, I sent a camera person there and then got it tested out and it just worked out immediately. It's incredibly effective. I guess it's fortuitous that you were able to figure out that the animation wasn't going to work, but what you came up with is not only a great fix, but it seems totally natural and beautifully done. Thank you. At one point, you show Hu Xing appearing at a glitzy event in a ballroom, and she's there to perform New Shu. And this doesn't seem very in keeping with New Shu as a solitary, quiet, and almost mournful exercise. And Hu Xing actually comments on that contrast. 
When and why did New Shoe become performative in this way? I think it's most recent the past ten years because the museum was actually established in two thousand five, I believe, and since then there has been more interest in Yushu, and especially nationally, that you know Huxi has become the spokesperson to be on a number of TV shows to talk about Yushu, and also there's a lot of events requesting some kind of presence of these practitioners to present Yushu in a way. But if they're just like riding on stage, these event organizers often felt that it was too boring or quiet. So together with the museum and also the local authorities, I think that they came up with more and more of these ideas of dancing and performing. Let's talk about Simu for a second. There's a sequence in the film, it's a pretty extended sequence in which Simu visits her boyfriend's family's home. There's a lot of nuances and changes in tone here throughout this sequence. But I would say by the end of it, I think the audience is left feeling a little on edge about the relationship on Simu's behalf because of the seemingly controlling attitude that her boyfriend seems to demonstrate toward her at times. It seems clear that he thinks that with marrying her comes a certain license to control her and tell her what to do. And at one point she says, you've pressured me enough during that sequence. So a spoiler alert to the audience, the relationship does eventually break off. My question is, as the non-judgmental filmmaker shooting sequence, what was it like for you to observe these facets of the relationship and possibly see some potential problems emerging in real time. So when we first started following uh, Simu, we didn't see this coming at all. We felt that she's very much in love and that she's very happy in this. But after knowing her fiancé, we also had a strong sense that he's definitely not a bad man. He's not a bad person. In fact, that he represents millions of Chinese men of where they come from culturally and traditionally and in a way that how they become this way also came from a lot of it is the social expectations, the cultural expectations, the DNA of what a man should be, what a woman should be from the standpoint of Chinese cultural. So in a way, we are also very understanding of where he comes from. But at the same time, we start to see the struggle between the two sides of the conflict of what they're looking for. Again, I was watching these footage. I feel torn myself because in a way, as a Chinese woman, if we don't have these social expectations, which is also pressure and confinement in a lot of ways and gender expectations, I don't even know who I am if I don't have that DNA building me. It's part of being Chinese. It's part of being a Chinese woman. And for him too, it's part of being a Chinese man. That kind of conflict exists everywhere. And also I am so relatable to seeing that where they're having this conversation and she obviously doesn't feel comfortable about what he's imposing those expectations on her. And I feel that too myself. And again, seeing these things, I am asking myself of how much we should push this narrative in terms of where it is out of our gender balances. How much should we unroot even the patriarchal mindset, even for me, myself? What are those areas that I should unroot myself and challenge myself to say that this is actually not right and I want to push that envelope without upset the other party in a way, but instead of 
inviting the other party into this conversation and to build an understanding and to bridge the gap of where we come from. These are, the, I think, the very much deeper questions that throughout looking at these scenes that I as a filmmaker and as a woman myself is challenging myself and hoping that throughout that experiences, audience can challenge themselves too, both men and women. I don't think that, you know, through these things, I want the audience just to have like a black and white answer that he's a bad guy, she's a good woman. And we're, you know, like we're standing on behalf of her to draw a line from him. That's not my purpose. I think the purpose here is really through the nuances, through the way of we portray in a way of really exposing their inner spaces, both of them, to challenge each one of us how much we should push this. One of the themes of New Shu, as you discussed earlier, is sisterhood. There's a scene with Simu toward the end of the film where she's meeting with a group of married women who talk about their marriages openly and honestly and give some advice. The testimonials are really heartfelt and somewhat sad. These women clearly were expected to sacrifice so much for the sake of their marriages. And the question is what's left for themselves. This feels to me very much like a new shoe moment, just this meeting of these women. And I was just curious, how common is this kind of dialogue exchange among women in modern day China, meeting in small rooms and safe spaces to talk about gender roles and their lives? I think with what's going on of the gender pressures, particularly the generation of my generation or even younger generation today, these conversations are probably happening every day, everywhere in China. And one of the things, I think because of the larger context and the landscape we're under, I felt compared to my mom's generation, who's like Simu's mom, she was also the first medical staff in the family, took great pride in her profession. And her generation, the society really pushed for gender equality as part of mandate from the communist government at the time. And I also benefited from that as well, because as a young girl, we always push to dream as high as we can, even higher than boys, you know, academically and professionally, all those regards. But all of a sudden, I think with capitalism plays a big role in it, that it really jeopardized the gender income balances now that the gender income gap becomes so severely vast. And in a lot of ways that women are discriminated in their workplace. Also, we, the state had a free childcare during my mom's generation. So I was actually sent to my mom's, you know, daycare center attached to her work when I was 50 days old. All of those were taken away after the capitalist reform and all of that. So because of the gender income gap, a lot of women are forced to go back to their family to perform the traditional roles. And also there has been a big push of revival of Chinese DNA, Chinese cultural, which is Chinese traditional, women's traditional virtual is kind of part of that. So the scene that you saw in the film of the princess workshop, which I know that they are using Yushu in a way to revive the traditional roles of women, but there are also very similar workshops around the country to revive these traditional virtuals of women as well, not necessarily in the name of Nishu. So along all these lines, and also from the one-child policy, all of a sudden now they're encouraging women to have three kids without providing any support, legal support, financial support, systematic support, social support. We're stuck and trapped in this. So I think because of that, 
it's very understandably expected that these conversations are happening every day among women because we're the only one we can rely on each other to talk about these things and every woman is in this together. In fact, that when I was living in China those seven years, if, even if I go to nail salons and I was talking to these women who was doing my nails about the film that I'm making and they were just started to all talking about what they're struggling with, their roles and all that. And then it's very similar conversations as we captured in the scene. And these women, I actually was not expecting, just happened really organically because, you know, when someone is struggling and we're like, what do you usually do? She said, I usually invite some of my girlfriends to talk about things and then they can help me navigate. So I said, why don't you call some of those? Oh, they just came together and then went into such a deep conversation. And I remember doing sound and then behind the boom, I was crying too. And for folks who haven't seen the film yet, can you just briefly describe what this scene is with, quote, the little princesses? So part of the co-opting of Nushu is really using Nushu to teach women how to behave, especially around men in that regard of reintroducing the traditional virtues of women, the adequates and all of that. And the princess workshop is very much part of that that I saw. And although Nushu, in a way, was writing, sharing among women of what they should do around their husbands and stuff that like that. But in those old days, it was because of survival. It's a survival skill. They're comforting each other to be more accepting because that's the only way they could survive. But to take that partially and to say that this is Nushu, and to use that to reconfine women in such a way is appalling to me. The Princess Workshop is a scene that we film about a Yushu practitioner using Yushu to host a workshop for young girls to teach them how to stand, how to sit, and the traditional cultural of what it to be as a woman in the name of Yushu. And I would just say I really appreciated the cut between the last shot in the Princess Workshop in the very next scene, which is a shot, I think, of Hu Xing's mother carrying a huge log on her back and walking away from the camera, her feet very much not bound together. We didn't have time to get into it deeply here in the interview, but a lot of the film deals with the commercialization and the co-optation of Nu Shu. There's a scene with Hu Xing near the end of the film where she says she used to be anxious about what would become of Nu Shu, but now she isn't. She says, when I'm strong, Nushu is revived. How are you feeling about the survival and the legacy of Nushu? I am with her that I'm not really worried about the commercialization of Nushu. In fact, that I think that whole takeover is a different path of Nushu that's not necessarily representing what the true legacy of Nushu is. And we also have no control of how that path is going to land and where it's heading to. All I can say is that, you know, through these things, I'm hoping that we can provide a larger context for the audience to see the social context of what where women are living under today. Because these men's reaction towards Nushu through these commercialization scenes is not necessarily how their reaction to Nushu, but more importantly, their reaction to women today. And I'm hoping that using these things, people can understand the still suppression that we're living under. And without the camera, this will be just the everyday woman's life right now. So that was the point. But I think the true legacy of Nushu, to have it survive, 
is to have it survive in every one of our hearts. It has to survive in the internal space of who we are because the most beautiful thing of Nishu is that it created this space for women to be vulnerable, for women to share their sufferings in a way that they otherwise cannot. And in this safe space, because of the allowance of this safe space to share their vulnerabilities and sufferings, strengths became to come out through the sisterhood and through the comfort and support they give to each other. And then hope come out. And I think that's very much the legacy of Nishu. And if we can inherit that now, which I think we need it more than ever, because in a way that the women's rights movement around the world is very much in a very different place. But at the same time, the expectations on women in a way is more so than before. Now that we are expected to achieve highly professionally, we are also expected to still be the mom of childcare. We are expected to do so much more things than before that in a way suppress us from saying that we're not good enough. Like it suppresses us to be vulnerable in a way that we have like project this strong persona to the outside world that we can do anything, but actually we can't, you know, we're not superheroes. And I think that very much that if Nishu continues to happen among us to have that space to allow us to share that our vulnerabilities, then that's a true strength of feminism. And I really see that as a different approach of understanding feminism here. And Nishu provides us a very insightful, beautiful and also different approach of understanding where our power comes from. Finally, if you're able to say, what's up next for you? I'm actually developing a nonfiction series about dating coaches. It's going to be a really fun, interesting, but also hopefully really insightful lens to look at the global gender dynamics through dating and how politics, economy, cultural has affected the way of how we think about dating, how we date. Because at the end of the day, I think dating answers questions about who we are and who we want to become and what kind of person and what kind of life that we want to live. Thank you and look forward to seeing that. Well, Violet, I would just close by saying I think your film itself is both an inheritor of the legacy of New Shoe and a beautiful way of carrying that legacy forward. So thank you so much for being with us today and congratulations on the film. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that maybe hasn't gotten a lot of attention that you'd like to recommend to people? So one of the hidden gems that I will recommend is a short documentary, which also got shortlisted for the Oscar, but I don't think it has got the same kind of visibility as many of the other films. But it's so wonderful. It's actually produced by my friend Hao Wu, and the film is called Happiness is 4 Million Pounds. Some of the themes that's dealt with in the film about China is similar to what Hidden Letters touch upon, too. I think that every film, if it's about contemporary China, has some kind of connection to capitalism and how that has affected the way of how we think, how we behave, and how we pursue our life in terms of what it means to be happy and how does that relate to money. And this film dealt it in a very smart and funny and also ironic way through 
the relationship between a real estate master and a young journalist who's trying to figure out their life at the same time. And I just thought that the film looked at this large and profound issues through such a witty way. Yeah, I highly recommend it, that film.